Father, the psalmist said that, uh, he said, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. And then he goes on and reminds himself that you are aware of everything that goes on in his life. Everything. There are so many things that go on in our own lives, and we think we're pretty well versed on ourselves, but in actuality, there's a lot about ourselves we don't know. Uh, We have questions about our lives. We have things that happen to us that we don't understand. Uh, There are times, often, when we don't understand ourselves. We will do something, and we think to ourselves, why did I do that? Uh, We will say something, and then kick ourselves for saying it, and say to ourselves, Why did I say that? And we don't even know. But you know, because you know everything about us. You formed us and fashioned us in the womb. You, as you constructed us, you gave us certain abilities and you withheld others. You gave us certain aptitudes and propensities and you withheld others. You shaped us and determined our physical stature and the type of body we would have and skin color and all this stuff. You were the great architect. And you still are. Uh, You control every cell in our bodies. And not only do you control what's within us, you control what's around us, all of it. And you have ordained the days of our lives. David said in that same psalm, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in thy book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Uh, This this, uh, life This Christian life is a journey. And we have men here tonight who we we would refer to as young men because they are uh, on an early stage of manhood. And uh, their lives are out in front of them and there are many decisions that they are weighing that will affect their... um, place in life and their course of life for many, many years to come. We have other guys that are at the midpoint and somewhat puzzled how quickly they got there and wondering why things look so differently at 4045 than they thought they would when they were 20. But that's life. And then we start creeping up in the 50s and 60s, and we can't quite believe we're there, but we are. And we can look back over life with a lot of regret. We uh, wish that we knew at 
30 what we now know at 60. But that's not how it works. And then we get older, and uh, our bodies start to break down, and they start to disappoint us. And things we used to do without thinking twice, we, we think four and five times before we do it. And uh, sometimes things that we would remember so easily, gosh, we can think for, we, 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 just, we just can't remember them at all. But this is part of the natural cycle and road of life. We thank you because of what Christ has done, that he has given us eternal life. And though our, our bodies are wasting away as we get older, the inner man, Paul said, is being renewed. And we all experience affliction, but in perspective with eternity, this is momentary light affliction. Whatever it is we deal with, it's light and it's momentary. Uh, in the moment, it may seem very heavy, it may seem depressing, but in the big, big picture of things which you have planned and ordained for us, it's, honestly, it's light. Because whatever it is we're dealing with, whether it's physical or emotional or mental, whatever it might be, it's going to come to an end. And we will take our last breath, and when we take that last breath... For those of us who have called upon the name of the Lord and have been regenerated by your spirit in the inner man, we don't cease to exist. That's when we really begin to live. For to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What an amazing thing. And what an amazing thought. Jesus said, he who believes in me, even though he die, yet shall he live. And we shall live without pain. We shall live without cancer. We shall live without blindness or with memory loss or with this or that. There will be no tears. There will be no pain. You will wipe away every tear. What a remarkable truth. May we ponder that more. May we consider it more than we do. For these are the facts, and they encourage our heart. As we open your word tonight, instruct us, teach us. If there are roadblocks in our heart, put them down so your truth can enter our hearts. We don't want to be just hearers. We want to be doers. Assist us in this. Help us with this. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, we're continuing this study, for lack of a better term, called Point Man, because it's based on something I wrote 25 years ago. And if you're just with us for the first time, uh, this book I did 25 years ago to men on being spiritual leaders of the family. Um, if you're married, you're a husband. If, you're, if you've got kids, you're a father. If you've got grandkids, you're a grandfather. Um, I'm full of truth tonight. <laughs> I'm full of deep insights like those. Uh, I think a lot of times what we forget, though, that not only as Christian men are we husbands and fathers, but uh, you're a pastor of your family. 
uh, you are. Uh, you've been given a responsibility. You have your sphere of responsibility. We talked about this a ways back. Every man has his sphere. Every man, as Adam had his garden, so each man has his, his plot, if you will, whether it's an apartment or it's uh, an, an acre out in the country or whatever you've got, or you're in a high-rise, or you've got a mobile home somewhere, or you're in a Winnebago taking laps around the country. Uh, you've got your turf, and you've got within that turf, uh, that's your abode, and there are relationships. That's your area of responsibility. That's your, uh, that's your family. Uh, someone said way, way in the past that every family is a small civilization. Every family is a small nation. Um, it really is. That's really true. And God has called us as men to give leadership spiritually to our homes. And that's what I was writing about when I did Point Man about 25 years ago. The metaphor, the idea was that in the military, when you're called upon on a certain day to walk the point, you've got men behind you. You might be on a reconnaissance mission. You might be behind enemy lines. You might be just on a, on a patrol that's relatively safe, but you're in a position of leadership. And the leadership acumen and ability of the guy on point affects those men behind him. Now, when it comes to spiritual matters, when it comes to the family, the husband, the father, the grandpa is on point. And we don't have... Um, bunch of guys behind us, we have our families, our wives, our kids, grandkids, whatever it is you have. So it's a very strategic position. The enemy wants to neutralize a man. Uh, the enemy wants to keep a man from taking on the responsibility. It can be somewhat intimidating, but uh, because who is adequate for these things? But the Spirit of God, Paul says, has made us adequate as, as servants of a new covenant. Um, we quickly find out that apart from him, we can do nothing. I mean, we don't have what it takes for this. So we get as close to Christ as we can. We get as close to the scriptures. We, uh, we get close to other men. He who walks with wise men will be wise. We're, we're, uh, we thank God for, for churches that stand on the word of God with pastors that proclaim the word of God. And we're part of fellowships. And uh, all of this is working in our lives to equip us so that God can use us and uh, affect not only the generations that, that are, but the generations that will be. Um, I, when, I, when I wrote Point Man, I, I threw a chapter in there that, uh, once again, got a little kickback, and I had people ask me about it because it was called um, The Birth of a Tangent. And back in 89, when I was writing this, the final draft, I noticed as I looked around and I was reading different reports in the paper and all this stuff about how many couples, um, how many married couples were childless couples. And I thought, this is interesting, and the statistics were already starting to show that it was on the upswing. That, now, there are two kinds of childless couples. <clears throat> First of all, there is what I would call the heartbroken childless couple. And maybe that's you and your wife, or 
someone in your family or some friends who truly, truly have wanted to have children, but for whatever reasons have not been able to have children. And we have technology today that is just beyond belief. And so we've all known different couples that have attempted to take advantage of technology and these medical advances in order for her to get pregnant. And uh, they'll spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars in the effort to have a child. And sometimes that's successful and sometimes it isn't. And if it isn't, the heartbreak continues. Uh, oftentimes, and we're seeing more and more of this, and it's a wonderful thing, we see couples who are not able to have children, we're, we're seeing a, a very strong movement in evangelical Christianity of adoption. It's, it's a remarkable movement, it's a great movement, because there are so many children without parents. And um, there have been books written about this. And uh, the young generation of believers is, is, is all over this, and it's, it's a great thing. Uh, it's a biblical thing. If you're in Christ, you're in Christ because you've been adopted. We're all adopted, if you read Romans chapter 8. We have been adopted into the family of God through Christ. So uh, many couples who can't have children will adopt, and if they can adopt, it's a, it's a joy of their lives. They'll spend a lot of money. They'll go through a lot of bureaucratic hip hoops in order to um, have children. So that's the first kind of childless couple. When you read the scriptures, oftentimes you'll read in the Old Testament of women and in the New Testament who wanted to have children who couldn't. And it was a heartbreak, and it was a heartache, and they would pray and ask the Lord. The second kind of childless couple, and this is the one that back in the late 80s I was reading about and their numbers were proliferating, were the couples who were childless by choice. <clears throat> now, I don't want to stand up here and make pronouncements uh, that are not biblical, but I will say this. It, what, what the secular journals and magazines were saying, which caused me to put a chapter, The Birth of a Tangent, uh, which caused me to even write that thing, is that just secular observers were saying, we have many young couples who were choosing, it's not all, but many who were choosing not to have children simply because they are enjoying their level of affluence. Uh, they have two incomes. They have a very nice life. They have a, uh, a nice home. They're able to take very nice vacations. They're able to drive new cars. They're able to eat in very nice restaurants. And they just have a very, very nice life. And because of that, their level of affluence and comfort, they have made a choice not to have children. And their numbers are growing. Well, that was 25 years ago. Um, I'd like you to turn with me to Psalm 127. Psalm 127 and 128 really uh, go hand in hand. And they are about the favor and blessing of God in our lives as we journey through lives and the stages of life. 
And let me begin in 127. Um, it says this, unless the Lord builds the house. Now, notice the word unless. Because there are a lot of people who build houses. There are a lot of people who remodel houses. There are a lot of people who flip houses. There are a lot of people that uh, will be in a house for a while and then they want to make a change. So we, we all know about houses. So you got to have a house, you got to have a roof over your head. And um, there are a lot of people in this community, there are a lot of people in wherever you live, if you're here from out of town, uh, there, there are houses everywhere. And what's going on in those houses is that people are, are living and they are um, they're functioning and they're working and they're educating children and they're moving through the stages of life. So pretty much in houses, pretty much across the board, the activities are the same. But note, but note the word unless. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. In other words, I, I, I want to I take two words and contrast them. You've got the word unless. And because of the word unless, the point being made is, in your activity in life, in building your house, your home, establishing a home, unless the Lord is Lord of the house, unless the Lord is Lord of your life, ultimately your work and your labor, and here's the second word, will be unproductive. So you've got unless and unproductive. That's the point of this. Let's read it. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Now, why would that be true? Well, it's because of this. There is more to life than what happens on this earth. This earth and our lives on this earth uh, is a temporary journey. As for the days of our lives, Moses said, Psalm 90, they contain 70 or due to strength 80 years. Um, uh, our labor is but pride and sorrow. Soon it is gone and we fly away. He's, you skip a verse to go to verse 12. Uh, so teach us to number our days that we may present to thee a heart of wisdom. If in a home, Christ is not king. If in the home, there is not a perception that that our existence goes beyond our lifespan. If in a home there is not an understanding of Christ and the gospel and the word of God and children are not taught the word of God, ultimately you build a house and you die and without the Lord, your life has ultimately been unproductive because you have never taught or focused on the things of eternity and the vast majority of your existence will be spent in eternity. This is a blip on the radar screen. This is nothing. This is a this is a breath. That's it. But eternity is forever. Forever. And and we never go out of existence. You will always be. You have not always been, but you will always be. So this is temporary. 
Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. In the cities in Israel, um, there would be, um, they would always have walls and they would have gates. And at night, they would close the gates and the little homes would be inside the, uh, the walls of the city. And as everyone was sleeping, uh, the gates were shut and you had a watchman. Okay? But I'll tell you what, people are fallible. Uh, unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. Uh, a watchman can only watch for so long. Uh, verse 2, it is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Uh, we've talked about this before. Uh, the, the American pace of life, we have actually given it a name. We call it 24-7. And one of the things that we try to do is we try to go 24-7. And uh, we are exhausted people. We are exhausted individuals. Uh, your mate is probably exhausted. Your kids are probably exhausted. Um, we, um, we go 24-7. And, and we're just fatigued and we're worn out. And um, gosh, we don't seem to have a lot of boundaries. We take a good thing and we just... We want more and more and more. Um, we take sports, and sports can dominate. I mean, I love sports. My dad loves sports. But I remember my dad put boundaries on sports. I look around today, and, and you know one of the things that's fascinating to me is that I drive through neighborhoods, and I don't see any kids outside. I'm going to tell you, when I was a kid, uh, we played outside. And, and we played football, and we played baseball, and uh, we played it in the street. That's just how we did it. And cars would come through, and it would, hey, 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 and everybody would get on the sidewalk, and the car would go by slowly. You, you remember those days? Some of you do. I, don't, I haven't seen kids on the street. I haven't seen a kid on a street playing ball since 1812. <laughs> I mean, you just don't see it anymore. And, well, why not? Because the culture has changed. They're either inside playing video games or they're watching something on TV or they're on a sports team. Now, I remember playing sports. I remember Little League. In our, in our town, uh, we didn't have leagues until, how old, 10? And the only thing you could play was baseball. Up until then, you had to have your own leagues, and you had to have your own. So we played all the time. We didn't have organized leagues. We didn't have coaches. But we just played. And when I was 10, I got on a little league team and uh, got a uniform. It was great. And we played on Saturdays, and I think we practiced on Tuesday night. And I remember after practice one night when the coach said, hey, gather around, and we all did. And he said, hey, uh, this week is different. This um, we're not going to play on Saturday. We're going to play Sunday morning or games at 11. And I knew right then I wasn't playing. Because, see, back then, they didn't have services all through the weekend. Because back then, if you walk with Christ, you understood that biblically you were at church Sunday at 11 a.m. We weren't real creative back then. But um, we are now, which is a good thing. I knew right then I wasn't playing baseball. I knew I was going to be in church just like I'd be any other Sunday. And afterwards, my dad circled around to talk to the coach. And he didn't say, hey, we're going to boycott the team and we're going to 
protest. And he didn't say that. He goes, hey, I just want you to know we won't be able to come Sunday. And, and coach, oh, okay, I hope nothing's wrong. He goes, oh, no, no, everything's fine. We, we, we'll just be in church. That's what we do. And, oh, yeah, good, okay, no problem at all. I just knew my dad, and my dad loved sports. He was very good at sports, but my dad loved Christ more than sports. And my dad loved me more than sports. And there were certain parameters, you see. Uh, I look around, and I see kids... And how many kids do you have now? One, two, three, four, how many do you have? And kids are not on one team, they're on two teams at the same time, and there are multiple practices, and you know, you know what I'm saying. I'm just kind of giving a little critique here, because things can very easily get out of control. Um, that's part of the 24-7 culture. Nothing wrong with sports, but anything can get out of control. Uh, we go 24-7, we go, 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 go. And the fact of the matter is we can't go 24-7. See, this is why you need the Lord. You need the Lord in every area of life. Do we work hard? Yeah, we get up early and we work late. Good. We're, we are to work. Whatever you do, Colossians 3, do you work heartily, not as unto men, but as unto Christ? It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. But, but you know what? Um, <laughs> You can't do this by yourself. That's why it says in verse 3, it is vain, it is unproductive to rise up early and to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. We do the work that we have to do, but at some point you have to, sh you have to go to sleep and you have to rest. Every day you've got to take a Sabbath. You just can't keep going. And see, God builds these things into our lives. And here's the great thing about God. A lot of times, you see, we don't want to go to sleep because we have so much to do. But the great thing about God is He gives to us even when we're asleep. See, unless the Lord builds, unless the Lord gives, ultimately it's unproductive. And then, note verse 3. And, and, and here's where I want to talk a little bit and do a little bit of a tangent. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord... Note the next line. The fruit of the womb is an inconvenience. That's not what it says. This, this is an amazing thing, this verse, to those of us in this culture. It says this. It says, behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb, watch this, is a reward. A reward. It's a reward. Now, it's amazing. Now, you talk to people who have been childless, and suddenly they're blessed with a child. They will tell you it's a reward. They'll tr tell you it's a, it's a great gift of God. They know that. They know it because they've been without for so long. But you see, others are convinced and, and I want to be very careful here. This is not everyone who chooses not to have children. But the problem is, it is many. Because the reason that many choose not to have children is they don't see children as a reward. They see children as an impediment. They see children as a 
a block to their goals and to their happiness and to their affluence. There are certain creation ordinances that God put into place at creation. Flip over with me, if you would, to the opening chapter of Genesis. So God creates in Genesis 1. And if you look at Genesis 1.27, it says, God created man in his image, in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Uh, some of the creation ordinances you have, let me give you just off the top of my head, a few. There is the ordinance of marriage. That is in uh, Genesis uh, 2.24. Re- and, and actually, it's in, it's in 127 and 128, but it's specific in 2.24. Um, God, beginning in 18, says it's, uh, of 2, says it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And then it talks about how he constructed Eve out of the man's side, out of his rib. Uh, the man wakes up, says, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Now, he, interestingly enough, he had seen all of the created order. He had seen all of the animals. Now, this guy's alone. He's alone. Do you enjoy being alone? For maybe a little bit. You, you know, you drink your coffee in the morning, you may want to be alone. But you can't be alone forever. Um, you just can't. I mean, John Wayne couldn't be alone forever. You know what I mean? The guy on the horse riding through there. Jeremiah Johnson couldn't be alone forever. You know, it's always the tough American guy. He's just alone. You don't want to be alone. It's a drag. You know? We were built for relationships. Uh, It's not good for the man to be alone. And he's seen the whole creation. And as he's naming all the animals, he sees that he's picking up this this pattern. Uh, Of every animal, there's a male and there's a female. There's a compliment but he's alone. And then, you know, God causes uh, a sleep to fall upon the man. Verse 21, God constructs the woman. He wakes up, and there she is. And what does he say? He says, and she's naked. I'm sorry to bring that up, but it's in the text. So don't send me an email on this. That offends you. Uh, 25, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. He wakes up and sees this naked woman. And he says, thank you, Jesus. (laughs) Or words to that effect. He's never seen anything like this in his whole life. And he's seen everything. But he's never seen anything like this. And he says, this is now bone of my bones. She corresponds to me. See, this, this, this is going to work. Uh, this is flesh of my sh- flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. They shall become one flesh. This is marriage. And as we've said before, God invented marriage. God owns marriage. God has the copyright on marriage. God has the patent on marriage. And there's not a court in the world that can change it. You might as well pass a law that water can be dry. You can do whatever you want to do. That doesn't change anything. It's just absolute futility and irrationality and insanity. God ordained marriage. 
Uh, what we see in 127 and 128, God, that's a creation ordinance, is marriage. Uh, another creation ordinance is in 128. God blessed them, and uh, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's having children. That's a creation ordinance, is to have kids. That is a good thing. Is it a good thing? Well, it says in Psalm 127, it's a reward. You see? But see, once again, we've got to be careful in our culture because our culture, any culture, is against the ordinances of God. Another, another um, um, creation ordinance is work. Man was to work. He was to work before the fall. After sin came into the world, he was now going to deal with thorns and thistles. His work was going to be tougher. He would work by the sweat of his brow. Prior to that, he wouldn't work by the sweat of his brow, but he was to work. Work is a creation ordinance. But now we live in a culture that's not only against what God says about marriage, and the culture says in all different books, and I remember reading Paul Ehrlich's book, Population Bomb. How old is that book now? 30, 35 years old? Oh, we can't have any more kids because we're replanting on the earth and it's just too many people. And Well, you know, really? God says you have kids. I'm the one who provides for the earth. I'm the one who gives you your food. I'm the one who sends the rain upon the mountains and gives you the springs that waters the plants and the grass and the cattle feed on. And I give to, you know, all the animals, they wait, for, wait on me for their food. He sustains the whole earth. He not only creates life, he sustains life. But we're told, oh, you can't have any more kids. So the, the culture says, oh, no, that's not true about marriage. And no, you can't have kids. And oh, young men don't need to work. We'll pay you not to work. You're healthy. You're strong. You don't need to work. We'll pay you not to work. You can make more now not working than a lot of jobs will pay you to work. And I'm not talking about someone who's disabled or needs assistance, which we would give and we need to give. You understand exactly what I'm talking about. And those are just a few examples. Okay. Let's go back to Psalm 127. Here's the thing about... Uh, Here's the thing about having a family. Um, it's not spectacular work. It's hard work. It is daily work. It can be very stressful work. Um, it's true that children are a gift from the Lord, but children all are also very inconvenient. Are they not? Do you know how much it costs to send a kid through college right now? Let me tell you something. I remember talking with a guy three or four years ago, so I'm sure things have gone up. His son was going to a university, and he mentioned to me it was going to cost him $80,000 a year to pay tuition, room, and board. If that was my kid, he'd be illiterate. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's a lot of change. And uh, four years at 80, it's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. So is that inconvenient to spend $320,000 in four years on a kid who's missing half his classes? Yeah, it is. Um, 
We had a new grandson arrive this uh, weekend, little Holden, and uh, it was kind of inconvenient because uh, we're glad he's here. Uh, his dad's birthday is on March 15th, and we had a big celebration planned for Sunday noon. And, um, oh, 12.30, 1 a.m., Sunday morning, the little guy decided to start kicking and putting his mom in a lot of pain. And so suddenly the birthday, his dad's birthday party is put off. That's the first inconvenience of many to come. <laughs> and so then he was born, you know, later and Sunday. It was great. Everybody's just, so we're all pumped. And then they're going to come home uh, Monday. And John said, well, hey, Mom, you did all that fried chicken. You did all that thing. And, you know, you didn't cook it. Can you cook? Why don't you come over Monday night? Can we do it Monday night? Yeah. So we all go over there Monday night, take the chicken. We got the barbecue bean. We got there. Everybody's there. And we get a text. They're not going to release us because they found a little something. They want to keep him overnight. He's fine now, but there's the second inconvenience. It's just the, that was just number two of many to come. <laughs> you see, uh, they won't sleep for the next nine years because <laughs> they'll probably have more. You guys remember those years? You don't even you remember going to work. You didn't even know where you were. You didn't know your name. You were so exhausted you couldn't even see straight. You brushed your teeth with Gillette Foamy. Do you remember that? <laughs> because kids are exhausting. But in the midst of the exhaustion, they bring you the greatest joy and the greatest rewards and the greatest, they're just their gift of the Lord. You see? But see, we get into this thinking, we get into this thinking that, oh, they're going to interrupt my lifestyle. They are going to interrupt your lifestyle. Absolutely, they're going to interrupt your lifestyle. But see, so often what happens is, when we think as the world thinks, rather than thinking as to what the Scripture says about children, we miss tremendous blessings because we get blind. We, we get bl we put blinders on. We we, we make short term decisions and forget the long term. N notice the rest of this with me. Verse three: Children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children's of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. A quiver is what a man would carry to put his arrows in. All right? So what does this say? Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. What we do is we shoot those kids into the next generation. When we're gone, we're shooting them into the next generation. This is wild stuff. It's wild. And then verse 5 says... How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Well, you don't want to be ashamed when you go to the gate. You say, I don't have a gate. Well, what this was back then, remember? They would have houses in the city, and they would be surrounded by walls, and there would be big gates. You go to Israel today, you go to Jerusalem, you'll see the old city, and you see the walls, and they got the gates. You go up to Bet Shan, where Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle. There's that Roman colony that they've unearthed. And at Bet Shan, you got walls and you got gates. Uh, all over Israel, when they uncover these cities, there's walls and there's gates. That's how it works. And that's where all the affairs, that's where all the transactions took place. Business took place there. Um, uh, the legal, the legal uh, disputes took place there. 
Everything took place at the gates. This is what, here's what this is saying. How blessed is man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Because what happens as you get older and you're in the gates, and as you get older and lose some of your energy and your strength and your faculties, you know what you want with you? You want strong sons with you. Because we don't live in isolation. And see, this is what is missed oftentimes by well-meaning people, and I, and I go back to the Scripture. The fruit of the womb is a reward. But sometimes we're blinded by the affluence. Sometimes we're, uh, we're blinded by the things. We're blinded by the glitter and the gourmet restaurants and the nice vacation. We're blinded, and we think, this is it. This is what I need. There, there are... Um, I mentioned my great-grandma. She had two sons who both died in 1918. One of the boys was working up in the mountains of Colorado, was living in a small cabin, and he got the flu. You know, there was a huge influenza epidemic in 1918. And no one heard from him, and one of his brothers said, I'm going to go find him, and went up there and pounded on the door, and he said, don't come in, I've got the flu. Well, his brother went in. He wasn't going to leave him alone, and they both died. Um, I don't think there's anybody in here who's worried, who's thought today about dying of influenza. But I'll tell you what we ought to be concerned about is affluenza. You say affluenza. Yeah, affluenza is a very slow-moving spiritual virus that gets into the hearts and minds of Christian people and distorts their thinking and distorts their judgment and causes them to make short-term decisions apart from the Scriptures. Affluenza. You know what was interesting about... Uh, uh, before, before uh, you know, that affluenza, that affluenza, the influenza of 1918 was worldwide. It was a horrible epidemic. It wasn't the greatest epidemic. The greatest epidemic was the Black Plague that hit England uh, and Europe and swept across the world. Millions, and they didn't even know how many people died in the Black Plague. Um, and, and they didn't know what caused it. You know what they later found out caused the Black Plague, bubonic plague? Rats. It was a flea that attached itself to rats. That's what was the carrier, you see. See, affluenza, you don't get from rats. You get it from the rat race. And you think more is better. And anything that gets in the way of more, you don't want. Anything that would cause you to have a to downside or to lower your standard of living. If we're not careful, we can make wrong choices. And again, I'm not saying everyone... I, I hope I'm making this clear, but I'm saying we gotta, we got to watch our hearts, don't we, on these issues? If this says children are a reward, I need to take that in consideration. Um, I remember when we moved from um, California to Little Rock, Arkansas. In California, homes are very, very expensive, and lots are very, very small because well, the land is so much money. Uh, 
we moved from a house in California, and our backyard, uh, the grass, the, our backyard was, well, it was small. I, I mean, uh, we had a little deck, not much bigger than this platform up here, and we might have, I, I don't maybe to that edge, a little past that edge was the, was the size of the lot, maybe a little larger, not real deep, real small. I mean, I could mow it in about four passes, the grass. I could mow that yard, I could mow that yard in under 10 minutes with no sweat and watch ESPN in the middle of it. <laughs> ESPN didn't exist, but uh, it was a small yard. So we moved to Little Rock, and homes are not much money, and we bought a house with a huge backyard. And I remember the first time I mowed our backyard, I still had the small little snapper mower, the smallest one with the motor, not the automatic, you know, you had to actually push it. And I remember the first time I mowed that grass, and it had been mowed in a couple of months, and we moved in, I think in late June. That, that grass was that high. It took me to mow that backyard, I'm going to say ballpark eight to nine hours. Uh, I would stop frequently in the humidity to sit on the deck and drink iced tea. And then I'd take another pass. And when I got done, I had bags of clippings everywhere. Then I had to do the front. It, it basically took me all day. Mary was somewhere out with the kids. But when I got done, I had such a sense of accomplishment. Be I, no, I did, because that, that house with the new white paint and the sidewalk, and I'd manicured the grass and cut it and edged it and... I felt pretty good. I felt pretty content. I mean, I've been out there 10, 10 hours at least. I walk in to get some iced tea. I sit down. I'm worn out, and uh, I'm just sitting down. And I start flipping through this magazine that was on the, the end table um, called Homes and Gardens. Uh, that, no, that wasn't it. Um, it was called uh, Better Homes and Gardens. <laughs> Better than whose? better than mine. <laughs> now, I was perfectly content when I got done with that job. I felt pretty good. I was enjoying life. And then I started turning the pages of that magazine. And I turned the page, and there was a, a story about a couple that redid their kitchen, some couple in Des Moines. And they redid their kitchen, and it was unbelievable. And it, it, you pushed a button, and the thing came around. It was motorized, and it went up and down, and they had new granite, can it, and, and, and I, you know, our kitchen was fine. I'd walked in and used it to get iced tea, and I looked over at our kitchen, and I saw the formica. Uh, I saw the, the cabinets, that, and I, thought, I remember thinking, I don't know how we live in such a roach trap like this. <laughs> I'm telling you a true story. This is absolutely true. This happened to me. I'm looking at that kitchen, and I'm going, <laughs> I thought, this place is a dog. I looked out on the deck, and because I'd turned the page, and there was a couple in Boise that built a new deck, and it followed the curve of the land, and they built an amphitheater, and the governor was inaugurated there, and they had, <laughs> and, and then I looked at my deck, which had been fine until I picked up the magazine, and I'm thinking, I've seen firewood in better shape than that deck. This is ridiculous. And I had gone in about two minutes from a state of contentment to discontent. This is the danger of looking at model homes after church on Sunday. <laughs> oh, honey, there's a model. Let's just go in and look. <laughs> That's dangerous. Is it not dangerous? 
Because you're going to see stuff in that home that you don't have in your home. You're going to walk in, and you're happy in your home. Your home is fine, but you're going to walk in there, and I guarantee you, you're going to see better. Better. Now, that's just, we can have a little fun with this. What happened to me that day? I was perfectly content, and I got discontent. Let me tell you something. Contentment is ruined by comparison. That's the issue. That's the issue. So we just got to watch it, guys. That's all. We just kind of got to watch it. How's your business? How you doing? You doing okay? Yeah? See, here's the thing you need. Let me just go ahead and give you a little business tip since I'm so strong in this area. Uh, what you need to do is you need to get into this whole tech thing. Maybe go out to Silicon Valley, get, get this thing going, get some young guys, you know, some brains. And, and what you need to do is you work your tail off for about three, four, five, six years. And, uh, and then what you do, and you're just fixated on this business, and then what you do, three, four, five years out, what you do is you sell out to Mark Zuckerberg or somebody like that for 19 billion, then you're a success. <laughs> See, that's how our world operates. We, 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 want, we want it, we want it intensely, everything else goes by the wayside, you, you, you want to hit it, you want to hit it big, you want to hit it and explode, and you pour all your energies into it. See, you're just fixated, you hyper-focus. But you see, that's, that tends not to be the way that God does it. Uh, you know what Psalm 127 and then 128 is about? Are you guys still with me? Um, Uh, 128, how blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Um, hold your place there. Go to 1 Thessalonians 4 real quick. Let me show you something. Look at verse 10, the end of it. He said, but we urge you, brethren, 1 Thessalonians 4.10, we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Watch this. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands. It's because they didn't have technology back then. Work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. In other words, take care of your sphere. Take care of your little civilization. Take care of your family. Uh, now go back to Psalm 128. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands. So what do you do? You get up, you go to work. Um, maybe you're up at night with kids. Uh, you got a little crying baby. You got another, you know, okay. You got to change diapers. You're getting ready to go to work. One of the kids throws up. This is great stuff. Um, it's just chaos. It's just crazy. It's just nuts. Um, But when you eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine. Well, man, hey, hey, listen, you don't want a fruitful vine. A fruitful vine? 
You don't want a fruitful vine. Why? Because the more kids... There, there are two reasons that I hear commonly from people that are young families, young couples who talk about why they would not want to have children. Here's the first one. Uh, I don't want to bring a child into a world like this. I'm going to tell you something. The world has, already, has always been messed up. Always. You know, it's interesting. Uh, it's just interesting how God works providentially. Do you know that Moses was born at the worst possible time for a little boy to be born? When Moses was born, there were so many Israelites being born, and as opposed to the Egyptians. And there were so many of them that Pharaoh had given an edict to the midwives that if it's a baby boy, you throw him into the Nile, and that's when Moses was born. But see, God had a plan for Moses. God had a plan. <laughs> if you wait until it's a good time to bring kids into the world, you won't have kids. But, but see, if you have the perspective that children are a gift from the Lord and God is sovereign over your life and the life of these children, uh, if you have a perspective that children are a gift from the Lord, Psalm 139, your eyes have seen my unformed substance, unformed, Sperm and egg, your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. You'll have children because you raise those children and you teach the children and you show them the truth of Jesus and you live it out and you love your wife and you lead them in the things of God and then you die and you shoot them into the next generation because the next generation is going to need to know the light of Jesus Christ. They're little lights, they're little arrows that we shoot out. You say, well, Steve, it's, this is hard for me to hear because my kids aren't walking with the Lord right now. It may be not right now, but have you raised them in the Lord? Well, then don't lose heart because you don't know what God's going to do. There are guys in this room who spend a lot of time in their youth as prodigals. I, I'm just curious. How many guys, when you were young, were a prodigal? Can I see your hands? They're everywhere. What are you doing in church on a Wednesday night? What happened to you? Well, the Lord got a hold of you, right? That's what he does with prodigals. So if you've got a prodigal, don't lose heart. The last chapter hasn't been written. You just pray him through it. Well, I don't know what's going You don't need to know. You just trust him to the Lord. You may not see him come to the Lord in your lifetime. That doesn't mean they won't come. You don't know. Can I tell you something about this? Um, what I get from this Here's what I get from this. God puts a tremendous emphasis on family. Uh, he says, your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive plants around your table. Uh, Behold, for thus shall a man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. And indeed, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. There's nothing in the world like having your family, your kids, your grandkids gathered around your table. And some of them are crying, and some of them are pooping, and some of them are throwing up. It's the greatest thing in the world. According to this, is it not? Right? That's life. That's the blessing of Almighty God. And you know what's being short-sighted? It's thinking, no, I don't want that because I want the gourmet, and I want the vacations, and I want this, and I want this. And then let me ask you something. When you're in your 80s, who's going to stand in the gate with you? You see. 
Who's going to be there along with you? See, that's a short-term decision that has long-term consequences. Uh, can I say this? Growing a family is a, is a hard work. It is a slow work. And it is a, um, it's a steady work. It's not a startup in Silicon Valley that takes three or four years and then you cash out. It's hard. It takes persistence. Uh, you're going to have, for better or worse, richer or poor, you say, wait a minute, I thought that was marriage. That's life. It's not only marriage, but it's kids. You have better or worse, richer or poor, sickness and health in marriage, and you're going to have it with your kids. Are you not? Yeah, you are. Because I don't care how old your kids are, if they're three or if they're 33, uh, your heart's with them, and wherever they go, you go. And when they're doing well, you're doing well. And when they're not doing well, you're having trouble sleeping at night. And you have an ache in your heart because you want them to do well, and you want them to know the Lord and walk in His ways. And it crushes you. It just pulls the heart right out of your chest when they're not. You see, and that's, that's a godly thing. And God hears the prayers of godly dads. It, 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 this, this family stuff is slow. It's hard. And, and I've said this before in here. Where we are these days, you can be willing to do the slow and steady and hard work, and your mate isn't, and they leave, and you're by yourself. That's got to be so hard. Why do I say it's slow? <laughs> um, James Boyce, I was reading his section on this psalm. He was talking about Abraham. God made Abraham a promise. And he said, I'm going to give you descendants that are so many, they'll, be, they'll outnumber the stars in the sky. And Abraham's getting up in years, and uh, it's not happening. He didn't even have one kid. So as he does what we always tend to do, when God, we think, is slow about his promise, we decide we're going to help God out. And we start kicking in our plan to assist the Holy Spirit. And so he talks with his wife, and they're up in years, and why don't you go in to my handmaiden, which was the custom back then, and have a son, have a child. So he does. The child is called Ishmael. Ishmael became the father of the Arab nations. Uh, the conflict we have and will continue to have in the Middle East, all goes back to Abraham and Sarah, not trusting God. So he had a son named Ishmael. Uh, but Ishmael was not the child of promise. And so it goes on and on and on and on, and Abraham is 99, and she is 89, and they still don't have the child of promise. Things aren't looking too good. But when he's 100, just a year later, he's 100, she's 90, they have a child named Isaac. Now, he's 100 years old, and God said, your descendants are going to be as the stars of the sky, and he's got two sons, one son of promise. And then at a certain point, he dies. 
Now, you know what's interesting? God said, your descendants, I'm going to bless you. Uh, the reason I say that God works slowly is God doesn't always work on our timetable. And you go through and you read Genesis, but by the time you get to the end of Genesis, and then you get into Exodus, uh, Joseph has gone in to Egypt. Uh, the people have been enslaved for 400 years, which God said before it ever happened he was going to do. But when Moses is raised up to lead them out, now the descendants of Abraham are over two million. Uh, God works slowly. Raising a family is slow work. It's steady work. It's persistent work. It's not spectacular work. But may I say this to you? It's incredibly important work. Is it not? It is incredibly important work. Uh, that's where I wrote the birth of a tangent. If you have children, if you have grandchildren, you are blessed. And I think, you know what our role is as husbands and fathers? Um, is to be as connected to them as we can. Let's say this. Once again, in our culture, we have people that have made their children idols. Your kids are not your God. Jesus is your God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Your son, your daughter, do not make them God. They do not need to think they're God. They do not need to think the world revolves around them. The world revolves around God. And the sooner they find out, the better they will be. But, but if they have a father, a grandpa, who loves them, who prays for them, who interacts with them, who reads Bible stories to them, who models the truth of Jesus before them, those kids are blessed beyond belief. They love you. They look up to you. They want to be like you. Is this great or what? Can you tell me a more important work than this? I don't think so. Let's pray and ask God's help. Father, thank you for our children. Thank you for our grandchildren. Uh, life is hard and life is difficult. Making a living is difficult. Maintaining relationships uh, can break our hearts. Some of us grieve over what has happened to our families and our marriages. Um, this is a sin-filled world. But we thank you, Lord, that you are still at work. We, st we thank you, Lord, that you are the God who does amazing things, even through the great tragedies of our lives. And we know, Romans 8.28 says, that God causes all things to work together good. And, and as we even quote that verse, Lord, we stop and think about the worst thing that has ever happened to us. And then we have to include that. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. It doesn't mean that things aren't bad, that things aren't evil, that things aren't grievous to you. 
but your power and your majesty is so great. We know that you cause all things, all things, somehow you make them work for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Help us, Lord, not to lose heart. Um, deliver us from affluenza because we all are dealing with it. Even those of us in this room with very little have affluenza according to the world standards. Help us not to love stuff. Help us to love you. Help us to have grateful hearts. And Father, would you be so good to help us to grow as dads and granddads and uncles. To be influences in a dark world with the light of Jesus Christ. As we go about our daily business, which is not spectacular, but slow, give us steadiness, give us faithfulness to love you, our families, and your people, and do our work to your glory. That's life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.